It's a real privilege to, uh, to speak to you. I, I don't do this very often, so we always start feeling a bit nervous. In the, so the week before um, I preach is, is usually a, a pretty horrible week, I must say, actually. And, uh, and it's often because I think God does test the Word. If God's serious about His Word being um, food and life to us and uh, dividing between soul and spirit, then it's not just some good ideas, it's not just some teaching and, uh, you know, just, just a bit of stuff that I, you know, I happen to find in the, on the internet somewhere. Um, that'd be a shocking thought, wouldn't it? But these are words that uh, have been crafted. And uh, I had this phrase, and I just sort of feel almost embarrassed saying it, but I think there's some power in saying it, that I am, in fact, a walking miracle. So, uh, and I'm saying that because that, that's my testimony, and uh, that's not a very British thing to say. We, we prefer different ways of saying that. But I am a walking miracle, and so are many of you. There are walking miracles in this room today. Now, another sort of nicer way you could say is that I'm a testimony to God's grace, and that's sort of taking a bit less of the focus on me and putting it more where it properly belongs. Um, but God's taught me some stuff um, through my years as a Christian, and, uh, and so I really feel it's out of this treasure that God's given me um, that I want to share with you today. And one of the ways in which I've just been, a few conversations recently, I've been thinking about back to the, the early days. I'm a GP and uh, work, uh, work hard, as everyone thinks they work hard, um, but I, I think I work hard and got a busy job. Uh, and I've also got um, four lovely children and uh, <laughs> they're all going to cheer and put me off. Um, be, be good, Ellie. <laughs> and uh, I've got an amazing wife and I'm part of an amazing family. And, and my testimony really is, is that God has helped me not just get by, not just have what it takes to sort of not fall apart. I mean, you know, truly, truly, I, I shouldn't be here today. Truly, I should be a gibbering wreck somewhere. Um, but this is why I'm a walking miracle, because I'm still standing, I'm still walking, I'm still smiling. And uh, although insanity is just below the surface, there's a little bit of crazy in there. Um, I'm holding it together pretty well. So uh, praise God for his grace and testimony to that. Um, I'm not quite sure why that fits, but I really wanted just to sort of say that this is something that's so much on my heart. And when things are so much on my heart, my worry is that it'll come out and jumble. So I've got some lovely neat notes here, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get through most of them. The other thing that's really encouraged me is that what I'm going to talk about is about entering God's rest. And how many different words have there been? I've, this has been something I've, I've wanted to say. I've been, this is for years. This isn't just a good idea because Phil had a good preach last week. Um, abiding. I was going to use that. Um, but, uh, you know, there's something that God is speaking very clearly to us. So whether it comes through songs, whether it comes through um, conviction in the prayer time this morning, whether it comes through through words about a fire coming so that fear is displaced and love comes. There's something about God's rest that God really wants us to get. And another sort of reason why this, I feel, is now is the time is that uh, New Year is, is great. Has anyone had a good Christmas? Yeah. A, good, a good New Year? Um, New Year's are, are strange things, aren't they? There's that sort of, you almost get through Christmas and New Year and then collapse and there's this sort of, you know, short, dark days, and uh, there's a bit of a sort of doldrums. But there's also this sort of sense of the new and sense of anticipation. Um, Jan and I um, feel quite proud of ourselves. We, we had a, a planning time, so we sat down and we looked at our diaries, and we sort of 
planned our holidays for the year and when we'd like breaks and what we'd like to do. And we've done a bit of the beginning stages of, of looking and planning. And there's this sense in the beginning of a year where you can look back over, over the last year and, and really reflect what, what went well, what didn't go well, what hopes and dreams were fulfilled, um, what, what weren't fulfilled, what do you think you really succeeded, what was pretty pants and you, know, you hope nobody ever notices and you never want it mentioned again. And there's that sense of looking back over the last year, and that, that is you know, a very good thing to do. It's also good to look back and see where was God in the last year and what was God, you know, this, this as I say, being a walking miracle, what's the testimony to where God saw those pressure points, he saw those tension points, and he stepped in, and he sort of saved you from disaster, saved you from yourself, he brought in provision and, and brought you through. But more than that, where was it that God was leading you and God directing you? Um, and the sense, in looking back at the old year, what was it that God was about? And as we step into the new year, what is it that God's leading us into? Um, because part of being a people of God is not just that we've got our ticket to heaven, not just that we, you know, in the sweet by and by, well, there will be with Jesus. I'm all right, Jack. Um, I've got what it takes. I can pray for my own needs. But part of being part of God's kingdom is that we have more than enough for our own needs and then a resource to those around us, whether it's financial pr provision, whether it's praying for the miraculous, um, whether it's just being, go, as Jesus did, go around doing good. And you can just see the kingdom of God extended by just going around and doing good. So at the beginning of the year, God's wanting to lead us into more than just having our own meet, needs met. That's his covenant promise that we will have all that we need. As Jesus prayed um, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer about, you know, my daily bread. God will give us everything that we need if he clothes the, the grass of the field and the flowers, and, and they look amazing. How much more will our Father in heaven give us everything that we need? That's a covenant promise. So that's a basic. So just getting by... Is, is basic, and God's leading us as his people into so much more. So, so New Year's really sort of stirs up all of these thoughts and feelings, um, and, and that's a good thing to do. But I'm concerned, and what I'm wanting to speak to you there is where do we start from? And you can get this right and you can get this wrong. Planning is good, but if planning just leaps straight into action, we, we've missed something. And so I'm wanting to talk about where do we start from? And where we start from is this place of rest. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, that everything that God can put in our hearts, all of the sort of reflections on the last year, looking forward to a new year, all the things that are stirring up. I've talked to many people who are very excited about 2012, and quite rightly so. I think it's a year of promise um, and a year of developing and unfolding what, what was begun last year, very much a transition from the old into the new, and this is a new acceleration of God's purposes. So there's lots of excitement, but we can, you know, do more from a place of rest than we can from any anxious, anxious agenda. So I'm going to read to you and uh, see where we go with this. So my title this morning is Strive to Enter God's Rest, and that comes from Hebrews 4 verse 11, but I'm going to read through the chapter Hebrews 4. Does this um, sound okay? I'm still feeling a bit boomy. Do I just need to get over myself? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, I was talking to the Old Testament people, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith 
with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, I swore on my, on my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundations of the world, talking about God, for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, and they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for, God, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for your heart towards us. We thank you so much for scripture which instructs us. God, I ask that you'd help me deliver this word faithfully and truly. God, I help, ask that you'd help all of us listen and receive the word of life, that word which will transform situations and lift us out of the devil's snare. God, we ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews, it's, uh, it's quite an amazing book. Does uh, anyone sort of struggle a bit with, with Hebrews, though? Yeah, a few nods and honest hands there. It's a bit like Revelation, isn't it? There's lots in there, and you're sure it's good, but you sort of, sometimes you get a bit, a bit wondering um, what's going on. So really, just wanted to sort of emphasize that it's a book written to New Testament believers. Um, but the believers were largely Jewish, and so they knew their Old Testament well. And so really to anchor what um, the writer was saying, he refers a lot to Old Testament scripture. So it's, it's got this odd mix where there's the truths to the believer, but referring back to the Old Testament. And so the key to understanding what this means is to recognize which side of the cross are you on. Um, and and that's, that's important. Now that's not just sort of time-wise, that's not anno domini, that's well, Jesus died on the cross, you know, AD whatever, and we're all after that. No, it's not time-related. This is encounter-related. Where are we in relation to the cross? And Andy spent a lot of time last year talking about covenants and the various covenants that God has made with man. Now, God hasn't changed. God is still the same God, and what he said back to Adam in the garden is the same as he said through Jesus. Um, but the way that he relates to man has differed. So in the Old Testament, God related to man on the basis of requiring a blood sacrifice. So animals had to be killed 
to make up for the mess of people. So our sin separates us from God, and the only way that the Old Testament could get back to closeness with God was by the blood sacrifice of animals. So they knew the rules. They had to watch what they did, and if they messed up the rules, there was a, a required list of sacrifices that they had to make. Um, and, uh, and that meant that if all of the nation did that, and then once a, a year, the priests made sacrifice for the whole nation, then once a year, one high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and stand before the presence of God. And even there, so fearful of death, they had a rope on his ankle in case he, he died in the Holy of Holies and had to be dragged back out. So that was the Old Testament requiring to keep the rules and the sacrifice of animals. Now, praise God, we don't have to sacrifice animals. Um, and even more praise God that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. So what Jesus has bought for us is freedom from the consequences of sin. We now have the right of access into the Father's presence anytime, anywhere, no matter what we've done, no matter what we think about ourselves, only by accepting forgiveness based on what Jesus has done. That's a faith exchange that we have now because of what Jesus has done. And so we don't have to be good rule keepers. We now just have to be faithful in coming before the Father and receiving the good gift that he's, he's got for us. So by faith we receive forgiveness because God doesn't look at what we did, but he looked at what Jesus did. And so we've got to keep on doing this. Remember, which side of the cross are we? Old Testament believers have to keep the rules. New Testament believers believe in Jesus, and Jesus' sacrifice covers my sin. And so that's the only question we need to ask. Have I acknowledged my sin to God and received his forgiveness? And so that's why the writer of the Hebrews says that not everyone has, because while he's talking to a church of believers, there would have been unbelievers amongst them. And so, you know, believers and unbelievers referred to differently in this passage, and you've got to remember that. And we've got to keep on remembering, because if you're like me, then most Christians that I meet are guilty of what I'm calling the Christian flip-flop. And uh, you just sort of seem to flop and flip from one to the other. So we, we believe in grace, and we think, oh, but I've got to do this. And, and we trust in God's goodness, but then suddenly we find ourselves thinking, well, I haven't had my prayer time this week, or I've, I've only I started the Bible reading plan on 1st of January, and I've, you know, here we are in May, and I've only read six chapters. And we sort of seem to flip between God's grace and our works, and it's so easy to do that. And, and so constantly there's this battle to recognize, you know, which side of the cross am I? And I'm in the New Testament receiving by grace and not based on rules and, and the law. Um, so we're going to go through the chapter, and I'm just going to pick out some highlights from this, some things that, uh, that have really struck me. John, can I give you that? Because I'm going to keep playing with it all the time. Okay, so I'm just going to scatter through. I feel this is going to be a bit of a, a canter through the, the chapter, and hopefully I'll pick out some bits that uh, will mean something. So let's read through. I'm going to pick out verse 2 first of all. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So again, just emphasizing that the story that we're not read, which is in chapter 3, was referring to the people of Israel going through the wilderness. So again, the writer here is emphasizing that Old Testament believers didn't enter God's rest. New Testament believers who 
um, received by faith from God do enter his rest. And that goes on and is emphasized in verse 3. I can find it. For we who have believed enter that rest. And that's it. We believed and we enter rest. There's not we believed and. There's no extra bit. We believe and we enter God's rest. And it's a great sort of just parallel between God's rest and, and what we now can receive from God. So verse 4 goes on. Um, for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So God rested on the seventh day. What was God doing on the sixth day? He was pretty busy, wasn't he? And there's lots of creation, the pinnacle of which was creating man, Adam and Eve. And, and God did that on the sixth day, and then he rested. So just think back to Adam then. What was Adam's first day? A day of rest. How good is that? <laughs> pretty, pretty far there. But again, you know, it's simple, but it's profound, isn't it? How, how often do we forget this? That God started, he'd done all the work. He'd done everything. As it says in a bit further on here, um, and God rested on the seventh day and finished. No, that's not where I've got to. I'll come back to that. I can't find that. Um, can't find it. God made man and rested. And it wasn't just that he had a Sunday break and thought, well, that's it, back to work on Monday. God rested and God's rest has continued. God hasn't required to do any more. What God did in creation, he set it all in and the fruits of that are now being born. And the same parallel is true of Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, his perfect sacrifice was complete and sufficient. Nothing needs to be added. When he cried, it is finished, it is finished. There's nothing more that has to be done to earn forgiveness for our sins to earn us access into God's presence there's nothing we can do to add to that Jesus cried it is finished and so in the same way that we can enjoy the rest from God's as God does from his creation we can enjoy the peace and the access in God's presence because of what Jesus did and just to emphasize that this phrase it is finished that is something that is continued to be spoken but it was spoken long before you and I were born. So just in case any of us thought that there was anything we could do to add to that, um, it was all finished a long, long time ago. For those who haven't yet responded to God's invitation, who haven't yet heard God's cry of, I want to be with you, um, then this still is an invitation. So Jesus does invite us to receive the forgiveness that he has already bought, and we can buy into that. Um, but for those of us who have, we already have that. Um, and so this phrase there, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's talking again to those who haven't yet responded in faith to God's good gift. Okay. Verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So that's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's not just that God's rested and he's done creation and, you know, we, we sort of are left to do. We now can rest from our works 
because we are now in Christ, because of all that God has done in Christ for us, we now have this, um, this benefit, if you like, of being able to rest. So this brings us to that question, how well do we do on this test? How rested am I? How well do, do I do with the resting? So we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 11, this is my key verse, if you like. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And this is a phrase, as I've said, which has lived with me for a long, long time. And strive is, is a funny word. Strive sounds like strife, doesn't it? And if you think strive, that's a, an anxious, oh, sort of, you know, got to, to work it up and do it. And, and you can sort of, how can striving and rest be there? Other translations use other words which can sort of help a bit more. Um, other translations say be diligent to enter God's rest. Make every effort to. Um, the Message Bible says keep at it, short and succinct. So, you know, it's not so much the striving, worrying and fretting. It's the sort of diligent application, the keep on, keep on, on at it. Um, the dictionary definition just mentions about devoting serious effort or energy. So that sounds good. Devote serious effort or energy to entering God's rest. I quite like that. And so it really is just this, this sense that we've got to keep at it. Why do you have to keep at it? Well, because life and everything you know, around us and even our own selves um, seems to pull us away from God's rest. And so this is what we're going to look at is, is what, what does pull us away. Because um, it just seems like everything seems to conspire to keep us away from God's rest. So how do we know if we're resting? How do we know if we are in this place of resting in God? It's not about externals, and you're sort of getting the, the picture there about what God's saying to us. It's not about what you see. It's not about whether you're horizontal and laid back. It's not just about whether you, you've got your beer in front of the football. It's not about whatever it is that looks at rest. Because um, often people can be very still, as this frayed, rigid with terror. Now, you can look pretty still, but that's not at all restful. Um, and equally, you can be very busy, but be totally at peace. And so sometimes I think it's, it's sort of peace helps us a bit more than, than resting because we've just got resting in our mind means I need to chill out, I need to find a beach somewhere, I need heat, sunshine, and nobody asking me to do things. South Africa, bless you, Andy and Teresa. Um, so <laughs> I hope they're not listening to these preachers. <laughs> we love you, Andy. <laughs> I think Phil was confessing some jealousy last week. Clearly, this is a theme here. We're I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, so, resting is being at peace. It's not doing nothing. And as I say, sometimes doing nothing, you find your mind just whirs and whirs and whirs. And the number of patients who come to me saying that nighttime is the worst time and the busyness of the day is stopped and all of a sudden all the thoughts, fears, and worries come crowding in. So sometimes an absence of activity is when you feel least rested and, and peaceful. Um, and that can be true for many of us. So I've just jotted down some thoughts as to how we know whether um, we're at peace or not, whether we're rested. And because uh, I'm a doctor, I'm going to talk about physical symptoms first, first of all. And so if you're not, if you're not um, 
rested, if you're a bit anxious, you sort of notice a bit of tension. You sort of find that you're sort of tensing a bit. Your muscles are, are tense across your chest and across your back and your neck, and you just have this sort of ache going on. Um, you might find your, your breathing's a bit faster or your, your heart rate's a bit faster. There's just sort of a slight anxiousness. You might even have a, a bit of a shake or there's that tummy churning. And, and I say that not just to sort of, you know, do the medical thing, but we, we need to tune into our own bodies. And I think there's a time where we, we, we are anxious, but we're not aware of it. Because once you're aware of it, then you can do something about it. But if you're not aware of it, then you just carry on. Um, and so one test, one measure of whether you're rested, whether you're at peace, is let's learn to listen to our bodies. Let's find out you know, what, um, what the flesh man is saying to us, because it's not always wrong. Sometimes your body tells you stuff that your mind, no, 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 I'm fine, no, 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 you can convince yourself. But so why are you all tense and, you know, Another test is um, what happens when things go wrong? What happens if what you're hoping for doesn't work out? What you're planning to do didn't quite happen? What's your reaction then? Um, a peaceful, rested man, someone who's aware of God's rest, will not be thrown. Someone who's just everything was hinging on that one thing working out and your whole world has just fallen apart. That is not a man um, or woman who's rested. So. What happens when things go wrong? What happens if someone interrupts you? You're, you're doing fine until, you know, and uh, I would be perfect if nobody else was around. And uh, <laughs> that's uh, one of the delights of being married is uh, you go from being single and you've just got you to answer to. And, uh, you know, you can throw your clothes around the bedroom, whatever you like, but, you know, it, it's just your way. And who can think of a better way of doing things? You come across this person who loves you, but they do things differently to you. And suddenly what you thought was just, you know, I'm the man, that's, uh, that's all you need, um, is suddenly measured up against something else. And, uh, and so when other people come along, what happens to your inner world? What happens to your sense of peace and, and, and resting? Um, how is your identity? How secure are you in your identity as a son? And we're looking uh, a lot through last year, doing studies in small groups, doing a lot of the preachers about this issue of are we sons or are we slaves? And what's the difference between a son and a son receives everything just by right, just by his birth, just by his position. And that is what we have from Father God. We've now been born again into the kingdom. We are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. And God gives us everything based on our relationship with him, not based on works. Um, and yet a slave feels that they've got to work to achieve once I've done everything then I can rest. Once I've achieved my to-do list, then I can rest. And so where are you? How secure are you in your identity as a son? And that's another test of whether you're resting or not. How convinced of or how aware of you are you of your relationship with Father God? Now, I'm not talking about feelings. Yes, we need to be tuned into our bodies and what's happening, but feelings are not always what we should go by. Um, we need to be convinced of our connection with Father God because that's the faith that we have, you know, received from God and that's the sort of conviction that we grow in, not based on our feelings. But how convinced are you of your connection with Father God? What's your perspective on things? So when you look at a situation, a person who's entered God's rest finds it very easy to see things from a heaven perspective and you're aware of God in a situation. That doesn't mean to say that everything's always smooth and easy, but it does mean to say that you know God's with you and you know that his hand is there to help through whatever circumstance or situation has come up. 
And so, you know, we might be thrown by something that's common, but God's never thrown. So if we are rested and enjoying God's rest, then we see things from a heaven perspective. And things that might normally just look total chaos, God says, I'm allowing this for a purpose. I'm stirring things up so that people start to call on God. And so we, we have situations that we face, and you think, why has this happened? And sometimes God just engineers things. Uh, Teresa calls this his Ways and Means Committee. Um, if you've been a bit uh, hard of hearing, if God's been shouting and uh, you've been in the la-la-la-la-la mode, um, God sometimes brings his Ways and Means Committee uh, and circumstances um, get you, conspire, that was the word, thank you, um, to trip you up and so think, ah, okay. Um, and so we need to see things from a heaven perspective. God allows things because of his bigger purpose and it's not just to give us a smooth and easy, easy life. Um, are we me-centered or, or are we God-centered? And then this perhaps is my favorite test of, of how rested we are. And that is, does the word should creep into our vocabulary? And uh, my, my family have had me preaching at them for I don't know how long, um, a lifetime indeed. Should is one of those words that I think should come with um, a warning. <laughs> and uh, occasionally there are you know, right ways to use the word should, but most of the time, should either means guilt or it means pressure. And, and if you just have that thought, if you hear yourself saying should, I should do this, it often is, comes with a sort of a, a heavy-hearted reluctance that I really should get on with that. Um, or it can come with a finger of accusation, you should. And so if you hear the word should in your own conversations, ask yourself, am I feeling guilty um, is there something there that's causing me to feel bad and I know I should do something to try and correct it and then you're into to works and not receiving the free gift of God? Or am I expecting others and I need you to behave well so that I can stay in control of my life? And as this, we put other people under pressure, we make them do what we think they should do so that it makes our life easier. And we can often go around, you should do this and you should do that. But what that really says is that we're not a man or a woman at peace. We're not a man rested in God's goodness, and we're, we're needing to control things to stop our world falling apart. So if you hear yourself saying the word should, just reflect, is that a warning sign that you're feeling guilty, you're under pressure, you're trying to control things rather than enjoying the rest that God brings? So those are some sort of tests there. Um, often we can just sense that it might not be us that's not at rest, but you can sense an atmosphere and sometimes you can come into a place and you just get a sense that there's, there's a tension here um, and, and it's good to be tuned in, not just to our bodies, but into the atmosphere around us so we can say, you know, we're a man rested, um, what, what about those around? And then we can start to minister and bring the peace and the presence of God into situations that, that we're in. So I just looked at that as some sort of tests of whether we're rested and I just reflected on some of the sources of opposition. What are these things that keep on pulling us back? What are these you know, things that seem to pull us out of the peace that God promises, the rest that we, we get in God's presence? And we're always having this battle to strive to enter. Um, and one of the biggest sources of opposition, one of the biggest reasons why we don't always do this is ourselves. And we are our own worst enemy. We are the one who would seem to trip us up more often than not. Um, how often do we face a situation and the first thought that comes into your head is, 
you'll never manage that, you'll never do that. that, that's for somebody else. So, you know, opportunities come up, you'll never do that. Um, or we rubbish what we have done, you know, so you may have, uh, used my wife as an example, um, may have cooked a great meal, but in Jan's eyes, it's, oh, I just threw it together. Um, <laughs> that's a, a phrase that comes out very easily. Um, whereas everyone else thinks it is quite amazing. And, uh, you know, I think, well, sheesh, I made it through a preach. And everyone thinks, no, it was great. And, and we often, whatever it is that we do, um, we tend to rubbish what we've done. And so we, we are our own, um, our own worst enemy. Or if we've done something we shouldn't have done, how much do we dwell on that? My word, that thing that I did. And suddenly in your own head is becoming a huge mountain and the whole world is falling apart because of this thing that you you shouldn't have done or the thing you, you should have done that you didn't do. So we are um, our own most enemies. And one of my favorite verses, as I say, that's helped me through many years of, of feeling this sort of sense of self-criticism um, comes from 1 John 3, verse 20. If you want to turn to that, I'm going to read the verses either side. 1 John 3, and I'll read from 19 to 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And I've found so much reassurance over the years through this word that whenever our heart condemns us, God is bigger than our heart. And, and that is an amazing, amazing statement. And, you know, that really is one I'd urge you to write on, you know, your notice boards at home, stick on your, you know, computer screen at work, wherever it is, just remember, memorize this word that whenever our heart condemns us, whenever the thought inside tries to bring you down, God is greater than our heart. Um, I like the message version, and I often read, you know, the, the two versions in parallel. And so I'm going to read out those same three verses, but this time from the message. This is the only way we'll know that we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts, and he knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of, we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, then we are bold and free before God. Isn't that a great place to be, that we're no longer condemning and criticizing ourselves, but we're bold and free before God. We truly can um, have confidence before God. So be aware of that, that sometimes the thoughts come into your heads um, are condemning thoughts, and very often you are the generator of them. We give the devil, devil too much cre uh, credit in my, my view. Um, and yes, there are sort, thoughts and seeds that the devil does, thought, uh, does sow into our minds that we need to deal with. But I think a bigger enemy can be our own thoughts. And so we've got to recognize these negative thoughts. Um, a great phrase that I've heard, um, heard said is that I shouldn't entertain a thought in my head that isn't in God's. So is what I'm thinking about myself the way that God thinks about me? And again, poor Jan being on the front row here. Um, I've often, Jan's come out with something, and I've said to her, don't you dare talk to my wife like that. And she's said about herself something that I didn't think is worthy of this daughter of God. And how dare we speak of ourselves? We are the sons of the Most High God, and how dare we speak negatively about ourselves? 
So we've got to, we've got to do that diligently and faithfully, and that's part of what we've got to recognize as not being in a place of rest, and then apply the cure, which is speaking well of ourselves and recognizing the truth in God of what is there. And so don't entertain a thought in my head that isn't in Father God's. Um, so yeah, so we do have this odd perspective ourselves. And it's also odd that we think we know ourselves. We think we know ourselves quite well, don't we? But these verses here say that God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows more about us than we know ourselves. And that's just thinking back to, I can't pick the verse out just now in, in, in Hebrews 4, that we're, verse 13, we're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is seriously scary, don't you think? <laughs> Who likes being naked and exposed? You know, I see those hands, not. Um, it, it's a shocking truth that God knows us so well, and yet we delude ourselves into thinking that we can sort of brush up our shoes, we can put our best clothes on, you know, for those who do makeup, we can do makeup, we can really have it all together, and I'm here, God, I'm all fine now, and we can delude ourselves that by our good works, by our diligent effort, by being nice, that somehow God's fooled, and he's going to be nice to us in return? I don't think so. God knows us so well, and this is the shocking truth that I long to live without doubting, um, and I long for all of us to live without doubting that God knows us so well, and he still loves us. God is absolutely delighted with you and me, even though at our best we can, we can brush up and it's okay. But God knows us in the rubbish moments, and he knows us in the times when you are doing okay. He knows us all the time, and yet he loves us so much. Thank you. I'm just finding my notes here. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we've got to keep on reminding ourselves that God loves us even though he knows us. And he loves us not on the basis of who we are, how well I think I'm doing or not doing, or, you know, any measure of approval or success. He loves us on the basis of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And that is the one thing that we can all stand in the good of, no matter how rubbish you feel, no matter how great you feel, you know, our access before Father God is only on this basis that we are saved because of Jesus' sacrifice. We come into God's presence to receive the full resources of heaven um, just because of Jesus' sacrifice. So really when we do find ourselves, what's the answer when we find ourselves criticizing ourselves, we, you know, pulling ourselves down, rubbishing our own efforts, magnifying our own problems? And the answer is always to run into Father's arms, to receive gratefully his forgiveness and his love. Okay, another place that opposition can come from is uh, not just ourselves, but other people. Um, and so we can find ourselves being criticized, being misunderstood, being misrepresented. And, uh, and that can, can come as quite a shock sometimes and really be quite hurtful. And, and that can bring us down and stop us entering rest because then we try and justify ourselves. We try and sort of, you know, make it all right. We try and p plead with people and say, no, 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 that's not right. I'm not like that. No, no, don't think that. And we try and persuade others and to try and restore this sense of, of peace so that, that we've lost because others have criticized us. Or again, circumstances. You know, the storms have come. 
your greenhouse has blown down, the tiles have come off the roof and they've pierced the, the roof of your car, the washing machines just died, or in our case the freezers just died and leaked all over the kitchen, you know, whatever it is, you've just had one illness after another. You know, is it circumstances that have just brought you down and brought you discouraged and brought you into a place of not resting in God's goodness, not enjoying the peace and the favor of God? Is it circumstances that have conspired against you? Um, and I'm going to refer now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but there's a story that perhaps is my favorite story in the Old Testament. I've got lots of favorite stories um, in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, 1 Samuel 30 talks about David and his band of merry men. Now, at this stage, David was still on the, roll, on the run from Saul. And uh, he was there in the wilderness, and Saul had come chasing him in the wilderness. So then he thought, he'll get near to the Philistines, because Saul's not going to get that near to the Philistines. So David pretends to be mad, goes to the king of the Philistines, and lives for quite a while, pretending that he's, he's actually okay to the king of Philistines, that don't you kill me as well, because it's bad enough with one king after me. So he lives in the Philistines long enough that the Philistine king quite gets to like him. And so the Philistines do what Philistines do. They go and attack the Israelites. And, and David sort of thinks, right, you know, I'll come and get back at this, uh, this baddie, this Saul. And he goes to march with the army, um, the Philistine army. The other Philistine commanders aren't too happy about this, and they don't trust him. They think he's going to turn against us when the battle's at its height. So chapter 30 starts with David being sent away from the Philistine camps. The Philistines go off to Jezreel to battle the Israelites. And David and his band of merry men think, well, what do you do now? Might as well go back home, see what the wife has got on for tea. And uh, go back, and uh, there they find the whole village of Ziklag, which they'd been given as their village, has been burnt to the ground. Absolutely everything has been taken. A band of marauders has come in and has wiped out the camp and taken off women, children, livestock, all of their goods and chattels. So imagine this scene, you know, it's always good when you read in the Old Testament just to sort of paint yourself into the picture. You're now David. You've been leading this band, and they're mercenary men, they're a bit of disaffected. They're just looking for some, someone to beat up, basically, to make themselves feel a bit better. They just wanted, you know, a good old war. David says, it's okay, guys, we'll go along. The Philistines will let us fight with them. We'll have a good thrashing there. We'll have some good, good battle there. Nope, that didn't work. Okay, so sorry guys, no battle today. Come back home, let's see what the wife's got on. And there it is, that while they were away, pretending to be with the Philistines, you know, everything that they owned. And so here you are now, you're leading a band of men. And everyone, your, wife and your wives and children, um, for David, and all the other guys, all absolutely distraught. And not only were they distraught about what they lost, it says that they turned on David to stone him. So that's not a great, great position to be in, is it? You've lost, you know, family, you've lost possessions, and all of the people who were your friends are now saying it's your fault. If we hadn't left Ziklag, this wouldn't have happened. And so all of chapter, uh, chapter 30 goes through this story of, you know, what did David do? And so does anyone know what David did? Strengthened himself in the Lord. Well done. Strengthened himself <laughs> in the Lord. Um, so it's just one little verse that is the verse. It says, David went away, and one translation says, encouraged himself in the Lord. Another one strengthened himself in the Lord. But he went into that place. He found his connection with Father God, and he you know, reconnected his own heart. And there he found all that he needed. And so he went out from that place, 
and he found the Amalekites who'd done the, the marauding, um, beat them, and uh, got back his wives, sheep, goats, and whatever else they, they had. And, uh, and so, you know, all was saved. But it didn't come through him striving and saying, right, must think of a better plan. Right, must come and work up something to get these guys off my back. It came from that place of entering God's rest. So if, and, and, and he sort of, that story fulfills both of those Brothers criticizing you, circumstances conspire against you. And again, the answer is to run into God's arms. So whatever it is that seems to have brought us into this place where we're not in God's rest, whether we do feel guilty, whether we are anxious, whether we're being criticized, whether we're discouraged, the answer is to connect with Father God. And as Lenny um, said when she brought that word, it's perfect love casts out fear. These things that conspire against us to produce anxiety, to produce fear, the only, only answer is not better planning. It's not talking to more people. It's not getting your friends around you. The only answer is perfect love casting out fear. And so we've got to reconnect to Father God. And, and that really is the key to any relationship. And just sort of slip this in, Jan and I have been running uh, a course looking at relationships and whenever there is this disconnect and so we don't feel that we're entered into God's presence we're not in that place of rest the first job is to reconnect and that reconnection is always on the basis of remind yourself of the love that God has for us and so any relationship you've got to get that heart connection back again before you can do anything else and I'm emphasizing that because so often when we think about reconnecting with God there's this temptation to think, right, I've got to do X, Y, and Z, whatever the religious thing is that you think will make God happy. Um, you know, whether it's reading 20 verses, whether it's praying for half an hour, whether it's sort of, you know, witnessing. This. You know, we can come up with these religious things. When I've done this, then God will be pleased with me, and then he'll give me what I need. No, it's a heart connection first. Our first and foremost relationship with God is on the basis of what he's done and what that produces is his love for us. And so we reconnect with Father God. And then, so this is what rest looks like. Rest doesn't look, as I say, like being horizontal. Rest doesn't look like a lack of activity. Rest is that place where we're fully connected with Father God. And it's in that place, in his presence, that we can get to any time, anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. It can be a one-second prayer. It can be just that sort of stilling your heart before God and thank you, Father. Thank you for your love. Um, or it can be just sort of spending good long time, um, you know, in, in God's presence in worship. But when you're in that place, that is where we receive. And so really the purpose of entering God's rest is to remind ourselves that the most important thing in anything is our relationship with Father God. The most important thing is our connection. If we never achieve anything, if nothing good ever comes out of our mouths and nothing good ever happens to our hands, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, it would be nice, but, but if your heart is connected to Father God, then that is the prize. You know, so don't worry what am I achieving. Don't worry what do others think about me. The most important thing is your heart connection with Father God. Now, the, the reality is, is that you can't be connected to Father God and good things not come out of you. So, but it doesn't come from a place of trying to, to work it up. So in that place of connected with God, in that place of resting in God's presence, we receive forgiveness. So if we have messed up, that's where we receive forgiveness. We receive love, we receive approval. 
It's also where we receive perspectives. So when I said earlier about do you see things from a heaven perspective, when you're connected with Father God, he says, let me just show you what I think about this. Let me show you how I see the situation. So we receive perspective. And then another thing we receive is resources. We receive what it takes to meet whatever situation it is we're facing. So if it's, um, if it's healing, you know, that's where we find healing. If it's you know, financial provision, that's where we find breakthrough. Whatever it is that the need demands in the place of resting in God's presence is where we'll find the resources to look that. So this is what resting looks like. Resting is enjoying the favor of God. Resting is living in the benefits of the peace and goodness that Jesus has bought for us, and it's nothing that we can add to that to improve that. Resting is just being and just enjoying and just the sense of God knows us so well, God loves us so well, we're not going to freak him out by suddenly realizing that, oh my word, um, no, Father God loves us and his message to us is that the first and the most important thing we do is we enter his rest. And this word striving, it's not fretting to enter God's rest, it's not worrying to enter God's rest, it's being diligent, it's being tuned in to what's in us, what's in those around us, what's the atmosphere, what's you know, our body or circumstances trying to conspire. And let's be diligent because, you know, we, we all slip and, you know, you can start off the day rested in God's presence, get to work 20 minutes later and you just see the mayhem there and you think, oh my word, no, again enter his presence, again receive the rest. And so we've got to strive, we've got to keep on working, we've got to be diligent, we've got to make every effort, we've got to, as the message says, keep at it. And as we keep at it, as we keep working at entering God's presence, entering his rest, then we're going to see amazing things ask, um, happen through us. Amen. Amen. Amen.